Arnazam, and I'm a clinical research psychologist at the Rocky Mountain Myrick, and I'll be your host for today's podcast. We're very excited to offer our next episode in our Suicide Postvention podcast series. Today, we'll be concentrating on how to best incorporate suicide postvention practices within private practice and mental health centers. To help us learn more about this area, we're joined by Dr. Larry Berkowitz and Ms. Eliza Jacob-Dolan. Thanks so much for joining us today, Larry and Eliza. Let's begin by having you both provide a brief introduction of yourself, and Larry will have you go first. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having us. Great to be here today. Uh, I'm Larry Berkowitz. I am a psychologist here in Massachusetts and have worked in both community mental health centers. I was a director of a community mental health center for the organization I currently work for, and for the last 12 years, I've been the co-founder and director of Riverside Trauma Center um, here in Massachusetts. The Trauma Center, our work is a little different than a lot of other places uh, that we've heard that are uh, call themselves a trauma center. We primarily are working in communities throughout our state um, and consulting throughout the country with programs, schools, organizations, communities that have had some had some kind of highly stressful, potentially traumatic event. Uh, and part of our funding comes from the state here in Massachusetts, Department of Public Health Suicide Prevention Program, and Department of Mental Health here in Massachusetts. And in that context, we're doing a lot of suicide post-prevention work. So we are working with schools, communities, mental health organizations, uh, residential programs, outpatient, uh, and we do a lot of a fair amount of consulting to private practices and other kinds of programs like that that have sadly lost someone to suicide. I also come to this work as a suicide loss survivor, having lost a sibling and several friends to suicide, and that has certainly informed my work. Um, and having had that experience, I think, you know, frankly, like many of us in the field, has sadly enriched what we do. But I think um, brings a, a lot of um, you know, good lived experience to, to the work. Great. So happy to have you, Larry. Eliza, would you like to introduce yourself next? Yes. Hi. I'm Eliza Jacob Dolan, and I have been a um, outreach clinician in community-based mental health for the last 30 years. I'm right now doing working with adolescents in high schools and in their homes and in the community. I am also um, a responder for the trauma center that Larry was talking about. As an on-call participant, I will respond to different needs in the community and, um, and work with schools, different settings, and, and so forth. Well, so glad to have the two of you together. Um, I just want to get us started. I know our, our listeners that maybe have checked out previous episodes have definitely heard other um, experts talk about the rationale and the importance of incorporating suicide postvention practices into various settings. But I just wanted to start there today before we go too far. Um, and Larry, would you mind kind of just helping our listeners understand the importance of why we should be considering suicide postvention and, and why that's something um, a place like a community mental health center or a private practice should be considering? Let me just clarify that, Sarah, when you say we should be considering, are you saying that the, considering having a plan in place beforehand or considering as doing as a routine and regular practice, should there be a loss? I'd say both. So definitely we love right, to um, right, encourage right. people to think about having a plan, but sort of why is it important to have a plan in the first place? Yeah, and then the fact that, 
you know, it's helpful to have one too so that you don't have to create it in the moment. Exactly. Got you. And I think you just answered exactly the way I would have. Um, sadly, I think many places, individuals and um, practices and community mental health centers are caught off guard. I mean, we all worry about and, um, you know, often many of us have experienced the loss of somebody in our work setting. And that that's an uncomfortable moment to have to figure out what to do. So certainly you want to have a plan whenever possible because that will help uh, make the process go as smoothly as possible. I think one of the pitfalls I've seen is that particularly in the organizational setting, people are familiar with doing the sort of psychological autopsy part of it, the review, the case review, and kind of jump into that almost organi- you know, the organizational investigation of what happened and to sort of review the practices. But what that sadly omits then is attending to the emotional and psychological needs of the individual clinician who was working with someone who just lost a client, as well as the other workers who are also impacted by it. So you want to have the plan in advance so that hopefully you know how to respond adequately and you know, respond well if a crisis happens. No, I was just going to say in speaking to that, Riverside has done a, a, a excellent job of incorporating the steps that Larry talked about. Five years ago, I had a um, young man on my caseload die by suicide. And he and and the way that the not only my supervisors, but my team and the larger agency responded um, was very supportive with with a non-judgmental and and a more helpful stance that they had, um, because of the education that I that I believe that Rivers that the trauma center has imparted in the larger agency, the autopsy was done. You know the the record going through the record and making sure that all my eyes were dotted and T's were crossed, but also looking at how did this affect my practice and me personally, along with my team members and the larger group that I work with. Yeah, I think both of you have really spoken to a lot of things that we know that are true in the field. One is Larry, as you had mentioned, I think many times folks think about suicide postvention as just this psychological autopsy piece or sometimes referred to as like a critical case review um, a structured sort of review of the record, which is definitely important when we think about improving our care as facilities and providers. However, as both of you spoke to and Eliza beautifully there, that's really not enough when we think about suicide prevention, offering a comprehensive approach. So we want to also be taking care of those that are impacted, affected, and close to the person that has died by suicide as well, whether that be personal and professional um, or one or the other. Yeah, such a good point. And we know the statistics tell us, and these are getting a little old now, if, uh, I, I would like to see someone update them, um, but we know that about one in five therapists will lose someone to suicide over their career. Um, we, and we know even more so in training. I think um, I once read that about one in six psychology trainees and one in three psychiatry residents, one in three will experience a suicide loss um, in their training. So we know this impacts a lot of people and we need to be ready to help support them, not only just uh, from being compassionate and trying to help uh, them with that, but 
frankly, it's a way of taking care of our workforce and uh, making sure we're supporting uh, the people who are being impacted in a potentially traumatic way as part of their jobs. Absolutely. And, you know, Eliza, I'm not sure if you have anything to speak to on this in particular, but it's also true that um, these losses can come earlier in one's career, kind of later in one's career. And Eliza, I know you mentioned being in the field for over 30 years and this loss happening um, in the past five years or so. And so I think there's something important to remember, too, that this is something that can happen to a professional across their career. Absolutely. And the 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 questioning that I went through of am I, so as a, as a veteran social worker, you know, have I become too distant from, from the client's needs? Has, are my assessment skills not adequate? You know, a lot of self-doubting, even though logically and through, through my supervision, you know, I, I was hearing a very different supportive message. Larry, one of the, one of the tools that I found most supportive and helpful was the coping groups that were part of the postvention and and how that they the way that they are constructed gives a voice for for everyone in the group and instead of people feeling fragile around me or around the the topic of of the client's suicide that that it allowed a um, I guess like a formula for us to follow and was very productive well thanks for saying that Liza and maybe I could fill you and Sarah and the listeners in a little bit on what Liza was just referring to this uh, process that we call a coping group but I think as a little background to sort of set the stage for that I would just say and this may be obvious to so many people and many of us have seen it when we're working with other suicide loss survivors, but actually a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is, you know, um, some surveys have shown that for a clinician who loses uh, someone they've been working with to suicide, the impact is similar to how other people say they react to a loss of a friend or a sibling. So it's pretty dramatic. It's a profound loss for many of us. And Different surveys, Jane Tillman, who's at the Austin Riggs Center in Massachusetts, and others have done some uh, qualitative studies with um, clinicians who have lost clients to suicide. And they all talk about these themes and these experiences in terms of, um, you know, that sense of the loss, the sadness, but also shame as you're identifying, uh, feelings of guilt, isolation, the worries about litigation, the stigma, the worry about judgments of their peers, and, and it really becomes almost this disenfranchised grief because they're not getting often the support that other people would if they've lost someone to suicide. So one of the things that we build in, and it's it's part of our model in doing trauma response work with um, with any kind of potentially traumatic loss, we, we do, we have this very structured group experience. It's a really a guided conversation that we call a coping group that asks a series of questions of people. So in a clinical setting, then we might invite any of the clinicians who have been impacted or who would like to attend, as well as the person who is working directly with the individual who died, to this meeting. You know, we're doing this maybe a week or so, week and a half or so after a loss. 
uh, where we ask a series of questions, ask people just to share some of their narrative of the experience of the loss, what their reactions were. Uh, we do a little bit of psychoeducation about the things we know about um, both suicide loss and what's particular to clinicians losing someone, but then really ask folks to spend some time focusing on self-care and what are they going to do to take care of themselves in a particularly vulnerable and difficult time. And, and we've had a lot of really positive feedback from this model. That's great. I think one of the, the most powerful elements there, as you described, is what sounds to be a good amount of flexibility. So a process or kind of a, a guiding framework, but allows each group to kind of take it as their own based on the particular death or maybe based on what each of the individuals are experiencing, um, which I think is something so important for the suicide loss survivor experience, knowing that not one kind of story or description will fit everyone, that it's really unique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think, you know, one thing that might be helpful, it sounds like this coping group or this guided conversation is a major element of the postvention practice that you all deliver. I'm curious what other um, recommendations or components are typical to a postvention practice um, that you all execute or perhaps when you're consulting with other groups that you encourage them to execute. Sure, there are there are a number of steps that can be followed, and actually, let let me now. This might be a good time to mention a couple of resources. Uh, one is that the American Association of Suicidology uh, has on their website a, a lot of great information, but um, there's a tab they have for suicide loss survivors, and under that is a specific tab that's um, related to clinicians who are loss survivors, suicide loss survivors. There's a lot of really good information and resources there, bibliographies, all kinds of great things. They have a phenomenal listserv that uh, there are many of us throughout the country who participate in to offer support to one another. But you'll also find on that resource um, a couple of documents that were created by Jeffrey Sung, who's a psychiatrist at the University of Washington, and he's developed a, a sample uh, protocols to use for postvention for private practitioners and for clinic responses, for mental health center responses that really outline a lot of the steps in a very, very helpful way. Um, and they go through things like um, identifying what are some of the immediate responsibilities. So immediately following a loss, what are some of the things that you need to do just in terms of making contact with people, reporting it to, to you know supervisors, uh, being in touch with a uh, your malpractice insurer, all those real basic logistic kinds of things. But then also moving into um, like managing emotional support, like uh, getting peer support, getting supervision, um, you know, and those kinds of things. You know, there's been some interesting conversation that I've seen, you know, some differences. Some people advise a clinician who's just lost a client suicide to be a little careful in who they choose to speak to. Um, and some of that has come from, some of that's come from you know, the lawyers who, who warn us to be careful that if um, there's a worry or a fear of litigation, that if you're talking to peers in a practice setting, um, that, that those conversations are then open to discovery in litigation. Uh, whereas if someone checks in with a for consultation with a, their own therapist, those conversations have more privilege to them and are more protected for privacy. 
So an interesting kind of dilemma because on the one hand, you know, we do want to encourage people to turn to their peers and get support and not feel disenfranchised from their therapeutic community. Um, I guess some of that decision about who are the best people to seek support from could probably come from a conversation with both a lawyer and a supervisor um, about who are the best people to turn to for that kind of support. So then you you know you heard us talk a little earlier about both the combination of finding dealing with the inevitable um, like the investigations, the record reviews, all those kinds of things. And you know I've got to say, over time we have heard so many people, particularly people who work for uh, agencies that are funded by state governments, you know, a Department of Mental Health or similar. There are all these reviews and the investigations, no matter how careful and benign the uh, investigators try to be, you know, people really end up, just because of the nature of what we're dealing with and the emotional reactions, they're already probably blaming themselves and beating themselves up, which is a natural reaction. So it's a really, it's a precarious moment uh, when we want to make sure that people are getting good emotional support during that time as well. As I listen to talk, Larry, and the, the, the legal implications of it, um, I just wanted to highlight how, so this suicide was on my caseload, it impacted the whole team in, 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 different, in different ways, it in, impacted everyone. So the loss of being able to share the, that emotional or to be able to support each other emotionally that way with people in your own practice or within your own mental health setting you know, would be a big loss. Yeah, and that's why you know, I feel reluctant even bringing that issue up, but I feel like it's important for people to at least consider that and to think about it. Um, and that probably depends on the circumstances and the nature of the loss. Um, I'm glad, Absolutely. Eliza, though, I'm glad that you mentioned something else too, which is I think one of the early things that needs to happen after there's been a loss is for um, the clinician and the supervisors to really sort of map out and think about, so who, who else is going to be impacted by this loss? You know, uh, it's obvious that the clinician who's working with the person, but you need to think out, uh, like you're saying, is there a whole team that was involved and might know this person? Will they feel vulnerable because they also work with people who have a fair amount at risk? What about your front desk mm -hmm. person? You know, the person who's the receptionist who greets folks who come in. Um, you know, that person perhaps is, you know, I can think of a practice we consulted to out in the western part of our state recently where um, you know, it hadn't even really occurred to anyone, but when we got together and we're having a coping group, the receptionist was talking about how hard it was for her every week at that time that she was accustomed to seeing that person um, and chatting with that person had sort of a, you know, a friendly weekly <laughs> interaction and that person wasn't there anymore and how hard it was for mm -hmm. her to, to deal with that. Um, so yeah, who are the other people? Is this you know, was this somebody who's in a group? Are you going to have to notify other group members? How do we manage confidentiality around that? There, there are a number of challenges here that, uh, you know, as as you play them out, we have to think through uh, carefully. Right. Yeah, I think a couple of things that I just wanted to further highlight that both of you spoke to there is. One, this importance of really using an inclusive approach to thinking about who do we want to support and provide resources to. I think at times we may get a bit too narrow in that thinking, and I, I believe what you two shared there really show how 
suicide loss can have impacts in different ways across people that may not sort of come to mind first. And I think especially when we're thinking about a mental health setting, there's so much team practice that happens too that Eliza, what you spoke to, the importance of being able to, to share and talk with colleagues to really help go through the process is really instrumental. We know from some of the empirical literature that exists out there, I think a common reaction or response is to kind of pull away and isolate a bit because it feels um, tremendously overwhelming as we talked about both that kind of professional and personal impact. But what we know from some of the literature too is that oftentimes when people isolate and they're not able to receive that support or have those conversations, that that can be a real barrier to thinking about resiliency and kind of the post-traumatic growth that can come from something over time. So we'd be glad the two of you highlighted those two aspects because I think that's something important for listeners to keep in mind as they're designing or potentially developing a post-vention practice. So I'm curious, I think we've talked um, quite a bit now about some of the recommendations of what to do sort of in the immediate aftermath in terms of a death, thinking about the, the first 24, 48 hours, thinking about the first couple of weeks. Curious to hear um, what the two of you would recommend thinking a bit more long-term about how to continue providing resources and support um, for folks and a more kind of longitudinal look. So not just that first couple of weeks, but thinking about a couple of months or even a year later. Yeah, Sarah, one of the biggest supports I've seen, I mentioned before, you'll, you'll hear me sounding like a big cheerleader for the uh, American Association of Suicidology, this task force on clinician survivors that was started by um, Nina Guten and Vanessa McGann, uh, two psychologists who are members of the AAS, the American Association of Suicidology, they created this listserv, which uh, I'm a member of, and I, you know, I sort of I don't often contribute as much as I wish I would or should, but I always read and watch, and it's just been this wonderful place where people give and receive support, um, both people who've lost clients and people who've lost friends and family members, because that it, those kinds of losses impact our work as clinicians as well, and I've really seen that be an ongoing support for people. And similarly, at the annual AAS conference, uh, which is in April each year, uh, Vanessa and Nina have... Um, moderated a, uh, a get-together of, uh, of clinicians who identify as lost survivors where people are able to sit together and talk about these very issues that we're talking about and support each other and share, have shared experience, which is really important. We've been able to do that here in Massachusetts um, several times over the last few years. Massachusetts Department of Public Health runs a really comprehensive and quite good um, annual two-day conference on suicide prevention, and we've facilitated a couple of times these um, work groups, basically, for people who identify as professionals who are lost survivors. And, and and I was pleasantly surprised initially. I thought it would be a group of clinicians, but it wasn't just clinicians. Pe people who were coming in who identified as um, uh, case managers and people who work for state agencies mm -hmm. who, you know, all all of us who are impacted, interface with and impacted by people who people who have mental health challenges and having opportunities to come together and talk, I guess is what I'm saying is really, really a valuable um, experience. Oh, go ahead. I was going to see what, what has been helpful for you thinking about long-term. Continuing to educate myself, you know, continuing to go to these, to the conferences as a participant and to be taken care of at them, you know, to, 
to partake in the group that Larry talked about, you know, as a clinician who has had a loss on their caseload, you know, um, I think also talking about continuing to have the place in within my everyday work to be able to talk about it if I need to, if if my caseload, if the acuity gets too high, you know, and it triggers something for me around the loss, then, you know, I can access more supervision as I need to. Um, there's different people that I can access that I know, you know, who can offer me the different pieces that I need. That breaking the isolation has been, and continuing to break the isolation has been important into reaching out to different supervisors or mentors when my when the acuity of my caseload gets to points that that triggers some of the old thoughts for me. Yeah, I think it's so helpful that you brought that up and I think probably really validating to those clinicians or providers or perhaps folks working in mental health settings that have maybe experienced something similar where as much as we would like it to be, it's not just a, a one-time event or occurrence. And I think you speak really nicely to the fact that this is something that over time we want to keep having the conversations about, checking in with ourselves, checking in with supervisors and trusted colleagues to really make sure that um, you're taking care of yourself both personally and professionally. So I really like how you, you describe there that over time, um, this changes and it evolves, and, and some days probably are easier um, than other days, but it's kind of part of that journey, too. Yeah, you say that so well, Spin, and I agree with both of you. It's such an important piece to bring, to be able to bring that to good supervision, to bring those issues, to be able to talk about. And, and you know, I think for for many of us, I, I've heard many clinicians talk about this period of sort of self-doubt and they're doubting their choice of their profession, and it really takes some time to move through that. There's this sort of existential crisis that happens, I think, for many clinicians who've lost someone. And as you're emerging from that, I think a lot of people are almost it's like a hypervigilance towards the suicidality and, and then feeling um, incredibly conservative around the decisions that you make afterward. And, and we really need good supervision to help with that and need to be sure that we're bringing those issues up ourselves with colleagues or supervisors. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's definitely one, one thing to keep in mind is that it's both sides, right? It's those of us as individuals, as clinicians and providers, kind of knowing ourselves. And another important piece of the message is having um, supervisors, managers, that also help make those conversations easier um, by making sure that they're attending to that, creating a safe space to talk about it too. And so I think there is a huge role that supervisors and managers play as well, um, yeah. just being aware of the process and, and making sure that they're checking in over time because that really communicates the safety and the fact that this is an ongoing discussion too. And, you know, I was thinking about it, too. This might be more the short term than the long term. Your question was about the long term. But I'm, as we've been talking, I've been thinking about a couple of contexts that we've been in where uh, we were responding to uh, once or twice. I can remember responding to a, um, a psychiatric emergency service program. So it's not individual therapy, but it's folks who are doing those crisis evaluations uh, and then have experienced a suicide loss. And... 
I remember having a conversation with the director of that service saying, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if the entire team here is extremely conservative and that you see your rate of hospitalizations going up in the short term. And, and indeed that happened because people were just, all the other clinicians who were involved became so worried and hypervigilant and uh, didn't didn't trust themselves because of the experience one of their colleagues had had. Um, so there was a ripple effect there to how other people practiced. Absolutely. I think that's so true, Larry, that that's definitely part of the normative kind of response or reaction where people um, may change their style of practicing to either um, be maybe a bit more defensive in that practice because it's coming from a really, really good place where um, we don't want that outcome to happen again with someone that we're working with. And we know that, you know, the whole goal of, of our profession is to really help promote self-efficacy in those that we're working with. And so I think this is another really subtle but important point of how being able to be in a trusted, safe environment where people are having these conversations is so helpful to, one, our own personal experience, but two, actually providing the best care we can uh, for those that we're working with, because ultimately we want to, you know, help them kind of share in that responsibility and be independent in managing their own safety as well. Um, and if we're being a bit too cautious or a bit too defensive, we're not allowing individuals to achieve that type of growth, too. You know, a thought that comes to mind as you ask the question about longer term, and, and maybe this is a, a slight tangent to that, but if we think of postvention as good prevention, to paraphrase Edwin Schneidman, who was one of the sort of early founders of the American Association of Suicidology, uh, he, he talked about postvention, when it's done well, prevents the next generation of suicide deaths become prevention. I think it's a good opportunity to remind all of us that we have to be doing our best to provide our trainees, our students, our younger clinicians uh, with mm -hmm. good evidence-based training on how to assess and manage suicide risk. You know, the, the data out there, sadly, tells us that majority of clinicians in their graduate training don't get that. They don't get the training on what is, arguably for most of us, our biggest concern in doing the work, uh, to how to assess and manage using best practices, suicide risk, and to treat it. So I think you know we should all be doing this always, and I'm really relieved to hear that some states are finally starting to require it, um, you know, continuing education for relicensure around suicide, uh, continuing education around suicide assessment uh, and treatment. But I think as a field, mental health clinicians really need to be doubling down on making sure we're getting adequate training for our folks. It, it will be another way of not only protecting our clients, but protecting us as a workforce from having to deal with these potential losses. Yeah, I think that's so true. And the other piece that I think is um, the the goal behind this particular postvention podcast series is the fact that um, many professional caregivers actually receive no training or education on suicide postvention as well. So definitely um, it's true about sort of the, the suicide prevention side about assessment and treatment and management. I think there are a few graduate schools that are still offering that compared to how many graduate schools we know that are out there. And this particular piece of a comprehensive suicide prevention program, thinking about suicide postvention, is often a neglected piece too, which is, you know, one of the, the goals behind having this series is to highlight the need to make sure that we're attending 
um, to this piece of the comprehensive program as well. Yeah, thanks for doing that, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing I wanted to ask the two of you is we have um, the different episodes that are featuring different um, places where people may be practicing where suicide postvention could come up. But I'm curious, based on uh, the two of your expertise, if there are specific recommendations or things that um, people should be thinking of if they're working in a community mental health center or a private practice. So things maybe unique to those settings um, to really have in your mind when developing a postvention process or plan. I think, as you said earlier, and as we were talking about, having a structured plan is probably important to have some kind of a, you know, it's basically a crisis plan and some protocols spelled out in advance, whether that's something that, you know, you find online or start to create for yourself or maybe for people in individual practice that, um, I, you know, I know many people in individual practice have, you know, peer group supervision or, you know, this might be a good opportunity to develop a plan with peers, either in a shared group practice or others in the community uh, on how they might support one another if there is a suicide loss and to have that sort of spelled out in advance so they know how to how to manage that. And similarly, I would say for those community mental health centers, those places that are part of a larger organization, uh, that they encourage their organizations, whether that falls in the quality management department or that they build into their plans a way to take care of the emotional and psychological needs of the, the clinicians who are doing the work. And that's where I would add, Larry, to or highlight what you just said about um, on the on the micro level of that for the individual clinicians, if you're in private practice or in a, in the mental health setting, the community mental health setting, to identify who are who who are your mentors or who are your supervisors who can support that? Where is the dialogue that you have beforehand so that it's not just at a crisis point when you are trying to access that? It speaks to just practically how useful it is to have the conversations up front um, because it's so hard to assemble something or to figure out and make all those decisions and have clear logistics when you're grieving in the moment as well. I'm curious also, we talked a little bit about um, components of a postvention process. We've um, covered kind of short-term as well as long-term considerations, um, the need to have inclusivity and openness in the conversations. I'm curious if um, either of you would recommend or thoughts that you have on whether or not it's helpful to have a team um, that's executing a postvention process. Like, would you recommend that it should just be one person's responsibility, or would an ideal best practice be to have a, a couple folks that come together um, to carry the process? Well, as a director of a center that does that work, <laughs> I can tell you that we would certainly recommend a team. Um, and actually, we feel very fortunate to be able to do this for people here in Massachusetts and you know neighboring uh, states. I, I, I don't know how many similar kinds of programs are out there, but it would probably be useful for uh, practitioners and clinics to look and see if there are any places in their communities that do specifically do that kind of work that have experience in doing suicide postvention, not just crisis management. Um, but yeah, the, you know, um, I think we're probably, it's safe to say most of us are proponents of a team approach to any of this because um, 
you know, as we've been saying, many people are impacted by a loss. So if you have a team, then you have a better chance of having a couple of people whose they may be exposed to the loss but may not be impacted by it at the same level. Uh, so, and those are the people you want to be able to turn to for supports. We've even heard a number of the practices that we've helped support say that, you know, the practice directors have said to us, you know, I knew all the steps to go through, but it's been really helpful just having a chance to review this with someone external to the practice. Um, so I think that often is helpful to have someone who's a step or two removed. And I think as we kind of wrap up and come to a close here for this particular episode, I'm curious what advice or recommendations you would have for listeners in terms of how they get something started, where to start. You've mentioned, of course, American Association of Suicidology, um, but let's say we have um, listeners that want to bring a postvention practice to their work group. What would you recommend on kind of where to start and how to navigate that process? Well, I would say doing some some of the research. You're right, going to the, those websites, doing some education, um, making sure that making sure that people do some good readings um, and actually, well, you mentioned that you will list some resources. I'd be glad to mention some. Um, um, other resources out there, there are people like uh, Jack Jordan, John Jordan, who speaks and writes a lot about this, and he has written a, edited a book where you know, with a lot of contributors talking about that experiences of loss and suicide bereavement uh, from organizational perspectives, which is a really good resource. So I, I think a lot of it is collaborating as as groups, either with other practitioners, if you're in private practice, or making sure that a, there's a work, like a task force in a clinic setting, to start looking at these issues and start outlining what would be the pieces. And, you know, you don't have to recreate the wheel is one of the things I'd say. There are some resources out there to start providing the structure and then filling in what would be specific to a given organization. Uh, and as you've said, a lot of the steps would have to be individualized based on the particulars of what's happened. And, you know, and there are a number of other pieces, too, that I think that, you know, would come from part of postvention we haven't really spent much time on is talking about some of the pragmatic logistic pieces, like how do you manage talking to the family of someone who's just lost a family member to suicide, and how do you, you know, deal with the pragmatics of, uh, you know, the insurance issues and, and the like. That information's all out there, and some of that can be, you know, uh, discovered by talking to legal counsel. Um, but again, you're, you're absolutely right. You want to start doing the planning, start developing some policies and procedures, and make sure there's something that people are aware exists. You know? So once you've, one of the problems, I think, for many of us in organizational settings is we often do some great work developing policies and procedures, and they go into a nice notebook somewhere or uh, in a file on the computer, and then people don't look at them again. Uh, so making sure that people review occasionally so that uh, they're aware of what's, what they've created and what's out there to help support them. Yeah, I think that's true. One of the recommendations is, of course, to, you know, always go back to your plan, kind of revise it annually, check in with key stakeholders or folks if a, a loss does occur about ways to improve and kind of further strengthen the, the process or the plan. Um, it's never a sort of once once it's written up, it's done, and kind of close it in the drawer. So I think that's a great point. And probably the most essential piece to any any kind of crisis situation, particularly in postvention, is to 
at some point, several weeks out, maybe after a situation is to make sure you do some kind of a, a review, an after-action review, a hot wash it's called in some settings. People have different terms for them, a debriefing. But it's important to review the whole process and to, and to ask, did, did we learn things that will be helpful to us moving forward about our care and practice with our clients and our patients? And did we take care of the people who work here and need to be taken care of uh, so that they can all grieve well and and respond well and, as you pointed out, hopefully move to a point where there's some post-traumatic growth and they can feel like they are able to transform this loss and this grief into something meaningful that carries them forward. Uh, that, that would be something to look back for to see were you able to achieve that. As we kind of wrap up here, I always like to check in with folks that we feature on the podcast to see if you have any last um, pearls of wisdom or last words or perhaps anything that you had hoped to talk about in the episode but just haven't gotten a chance to speak to yet. Um, Eliza, I'll, I'll turn to you first and see if there's anything else that you'd like to share or any kind of parting words uh, for the episode today. I think a, a major part of, of the post-mention work that I learned as a as a person as well as a clinician is to notice the reactions that I was going through. So notice how I was more sensitive or how I was hypervigilant or how I was crying at the at a moment's notice or how I was laughing and not judge that and not be judged for those. Um, and that was very helpful. I think it's it's so helpful to just give ourselves that permission. I think it's the, the permission and the expectation that we set for those that we work with. And, and sometimes it's hard as professional caregivers to give ourselves that permission. So I think that's such, a, such an impactful point that you shared there. Thanks. And Larry, how about you? Any kind of final parting words or anything else that you wanted to kind of touch on before we finish up today? Yeah, you know, I I think I mostly want to thank listeners for for the work that everyone is doing in this, in this field. As mental health clinicians, we give our hearts and souls to the people we sit with and talk with every day, and we take on an incredible amount. We listen to stories that are often incredibly difficult. We've meet with people whose lives are incredibly challenging, and we bear a lot of that. We carry a lot of that. And while it may sound um, almost formulaic and we hear this often and say it often to each other, the need to take care, good care of ourselves is essential. It's, uh, you know, Laura Vandernut Lipsky in her book on trauma stewardship called this, uh, I believe it was her term, an ethical imperative, that, you know, we have to really care for ourselves if we're going to care for others. And we have to take that seriously in doing this work. It's intense work. And hopefully, you know, hopefully we don't ever have to walk down that path of uh, dealing with a loss, but we may have to. And even if we don't, we're dealing with incredibly intense situations and stories all the time. So I just want to put in another good pitch for making sure we're doing what we need to to revitalize ourselves. Um, we often at our center quote the... Uh, saxophonist uh, Charlie Parker who said if if you don't live it it won't come out your horn 
know, we need to <laughs> truly, we need to truly um, take care of ourselves and nurture ourselves and each other so that we can continue to nurture the people we work with every day. Yeah, I think no better way to close this particular episode than what the two of you shared there. I think this work related to suicide postvention is so fitting into that philosophy. And it's also true that just doing these things to care for ourselves so we can care for others um, is just critical to the work that we do, whether or not um, a suicide loss does or doesn't happen across our careers, but just being um, really mindful. Um, and again, that sense of allowing permission to have these conversations, to have these topics. Um, and I want to say thank you to the two of you for just so um, beautifully describing your experiences in different ways and providing really tangible, concrete steps for those that are listening that are looking to either start a, a postvention practice or perhaps to kind of revise or refine their own. Um, and thank you both for sharing your own personal experiences as well as I think um, that provides, um, again, that sense of permission and, and acceptance to really show that emotional side too. So thank you both so much. You're welcome. Thanks for doing this series. It's really important. So glad you're doing it. Absolutely. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Uniting for Suicide Postvention, USPV, in collaboration with the American Association of Suicidology Clinical Survivor Task Force. USPV offers suicide postvention resources designed for family, friends, acquaintances, employees, supervisors, managers, and professional caregivers, including mental and medical health providers. USPV is funded by the Veterans Health Administration Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention. Thank you for listening, and be sure to check out our other episodes in this Suicide Postvention series.